Well, it's good to see you all tonight. Zephaniah, the book of Zephaniah. It's almost at the end of the Old Testament. In fact, it may be easier to find Zephaniah by finding Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and going backwards a few books. We're going to look at John, the John, what I call the John 3.16, again, of the Old Testament. Obviously, John 3.16 is one of the most familiar verses, if not the most familiar verse from the Bible. Many people know it, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that verse declares to us, obviously, the great love that God has for every human being, the value and worth of every human being, because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was sent from that love. And he himself came to this earth to die on the cross because of that great love that he has for each one of us. Well, in Zephaniah 3.17, that great love for God is declared to the people of God. And I want to read Zephaniah 3.17, but then I want to go back and give you the context. This is only three chapters. It's a very short book. But I want to give you the context of this verse, because that's important too, in understanding really the import and the impact of Zephaniah 3.17. So look at it with me. One of my favorite verses. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a warrior who can deliver. He takes great delight in you. He renews you by his love. He shouts for joy over you. Now to understand again the context of this verse, Zephaniah can be divided up in this way. From chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 3, verse 8, so almost the entire book, are prophecies of judgment. It's speaking about a judgment day that is coming. Then from Zephaniah 3, verse 9, to the end of the book, verse 20, are prophecies of blessing not speaking then of a judgment day, but of a joyful day. Zephaniah was a prophet during the time of King Josiah. And I believe that after the ministry, if you will, of Zephaniah, there was a great revival, a great spiritual awakening that took place within the nation of Israel. And I believe that it was due in part to the message of Zephaniah. Because Zephaniah, first of all, was saying to the people of God, God's judgment is coming. And those that need to repent, need to repent and seek the Lord's favor. And those that are following the Lord and are the people of God, you have wonderful things awaiting you, including God's own personal fellowship, if you will, that we talked about there in Zephaniah 3.17. Zephaniah speaks about the day of the Lord, which talks about his judgment more than any other Old Testament book. That may shock many people. 
But that's true. Even in three short chapters, Zephaniah mentions the day of the Lord, the coming judgment that is to come on the world more than any other book. And I want to just give you a couple examples of that. Look at verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the Lord's day of judgment is almost here. Look at verse 14. The Lord's great day of judgment is almost here. It is approaching very rapidly. But then notice in chapter 2, verse 3, the prophet says to the people, seek the Lord's favor. In a sense, he's saying to the people, he's calling upon them, repent of your ways and turn to the Lord. Now again, I'm skipping over a lot tonight. If you want to study and read the book of Zephaniah on your own, that's great. I wanted to zero in on Zephaniah 317 tonight, but I did want to give a little context. So if you now go over to chapter 3, verse 8, notice the Lord begins to speak pretty much from verse 8 all the way through the rest of the chapter, which instead of being prophecies of judgment, now he's talking about prophecies of blessing. But before he gets to the blessing, in verse 8, sort of the transition verse between the prophecies of judgment and the prophecies of blessing, Notice what God says to the people. Therefore, you must wait patiently for me, says the Lord. They're living in bad times, dark times, if you will. And there are many in Israel that are not following the Lord, and, and there's a lot of consequence for disobeying the Lord and going their own way. And in a sense, the nation of Israel is at a really low time right now. One thing I'd like to point out, I think this is sort of cool because this can really apply to us. You and I are sort of in that right now as well. We're waiting patiently, as the Lord says in the book of Zephaniah, or through the prophet Zephaniah, before the Lord comes and is vindicated before the world and vindicates his own people. Notice he goes on to say, for the day when I attack and take plunder. In other words, when God is moving to fulfill what he has promised. In fact, that's sort of the way the book ends. Notice in verse 19, the phrase, at that time, I'll deal with those who mistreated you, speaking of Israel. And, and we know that throughout history, there's been so much anti-Semitism and so much of the world against the Jewish nation. And, Jewish, and God is saying to his people, wait patiently. Those who are opposed to you and who are against you and who are trying to destroy you, they're going to get theirs, but you've got to wait patiently for my promises to you as a nation to be fulfilled. At that time, not now, at that time I will deal with those who mistreated you. Then notice verse 20, at that time I will lead you. At that time I will gather you together. And then the final verse of the prophecy, be sure of this. I will make all the nations of the earth respect and admire you when you see me restore you, says the Lord. And what God says, God will do. And that's why many of the prophets, including Zephaniah, ends with a message of hope to God's people for two reasons. One, it is a reminder that God is faithful to his promises. God will do what he said he would do, both in judgment and in restoration. 
And books like Zephaniah are a beautiful balance of, of, of picturing God. And all of us need a balanced view of God, not one extreme or the other. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he is also the lamb of God that comes and takes away the sin of the world. He is a God of love, and God is love, but he's also a holy God who one day promised, I will also judge the world in righteousness. And we've got to keep that balance, if you will, in mind. So if you go back, though, to verse 8, very interestingly, the phrase in the Hebrew, wait patiently, means to wait patiently through adhering to God. And so the same thing that God is asking his people of the Old Testament, in a sense, we can also apply to us today. How do we wait patiently for God to fulfill his promises, to come back to earth, to settle the accounts, to settle the score, to be vindicated before the world, to vindicate his people by adhering to God? by clinging to God and to his promises, by remaining close, by abiding in him, by remaining in him. The same thing Jesus said to his followers in the gospel, especially John 15, remain in me and my words in you. Abide in me. Stay connected to me. You cannot bear fruit unless you as the branch stay connected to the vine. I am the life-giving vine, so stay close to me. Maintain fellowship with me. Adhere to me. That's exactly what God's message was to his people. The only way we will be able to be patient and continue to wait with expectation and anticipation for God to fulfill his promises is by adhering to the Lord. But then I love this. God begins in verse 9 again to promise and prophesy the blessings that are coming to those, that remnant, if you will, that has remained true to the Lord. And it so reminds me of, of even in the Old Testament where uh, Elijah was so discouraged and, and felt like throwing up his hands and giving up, and yet God had to remind him, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee yet to Baal. In other words, God was saying, I have a faithful remnant. God has always had a faithful remnant. Maybe generally the people of God have not always followed and wholeheartedly embraced God and following God, but there's always been throughout history in the Old Testament and now in the New Testament age a people who were a faithful remnant to God no matter what days and what times and how dark it was that they lived in. And so God is saying to them, what a wonderful future. In a sense, a lot of what he talks about from verse 9 through the end of the chapter is what the millennial kingdom is going to look like, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. And notice one of the cool things is that those of us, and we learned this through our series and on worship, that in our future... You better enjoy praise and worship now because our future is going to be filled with it, both in the millennial kingdom and then on into the eternal kingdom. Because notice in verse 14, the Lord says, Shout for joy, daughter Zion, true child of Zion. Shout out, Israel. It is a call for exuberant, enthusiastic praise and worship of God's people. Be happy and boast with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. 
The kingdom is going to be a time of praise and worship for what God has done. Because notice, verse 15, the Lord, first of all, has removed the judgment against you. <laughs> wow. Through the sacrifice of his own son. And then he has turned back your enemy. And think about this again in the Old Testament context of the nation of Israel and even into the New Testament age where we talk about the prophecy where one day the Bible predicts that the nations of the world will literally gather around seeking to annihilate and destroy and wipe out the nation of Israel from the face of the earth. And that's when the Lord Jesus will come in power and great glory at the battle of Armageddon and literally with one fell swoop wipe out the nations of the world. And because God has removed judgment and because God has removed their enemies, there's a vacuum. But notice that God is the one that fills the vacuum of our lives, even in this day, with himself. Which is why after reminding the people that there's coming a day where the judgment will be removed and he will turn back their enemies, the prophet is recording the words of the Lord who says, Israel's king, the Lord, is going to be in your midst. And that's the first time that phrase is used. The second time is used in verse 17, the verse we're going to look at in just a moment. But then notice this. Because God is in their midst, he is among them, he is with them, he is even in them, that the Bible says to them, the people of God, notice at the end of verse 15, this is so important, you no longer need to fear disaster. You see, throughout Israel's history, Israel's always been a target of Satan and the people of the world. And there's coming a day where they're not going to have to worry about having all their defenses around Israel and, you know, rockets to shoot down other people's rockets that are pointed at them and all that, that's all going to be gone one day. On that day, verse 16, they will say to Jerusalem, don't be afraid, Zion. Your hands must not be paralyzed from panic or fear. Fear paralyzes us. And God is saying to his people in the Old Testament as he says to us today, don't be afraid, stop being afraid. Why? Because when the Lord himself is present, there is no reason to fear. When you and I know that the Lord is in our midst, there's no reason to be afraid. There's no reason to fear. There's no reason to panic and be anxious or worry because the Lord God is in our midst. So with all of that, that's the context if you will, of then verse 17, you see. Yes, the majority of the book have, have been prophecies about the coming day of the Lord and judgment against the nations of the world and even those Jews who would not embrace the Lord. But the Lord ends the book with a message of hope to his true people, to his faithful remnant, who has been true to him no matter what days that they lived in. And listen, my friends, even though verse 17 of Zephaniah was specifically directed to the people of God in the Old Testament, everything that Zephaniah records that the Lord says in verse 17 can also be applied to the people of God today, us sitting right here in this auditorium today. 
And that's why I wanted to share it with you tonight, because I think it will be a message of encouragement to you, just as it was to the people in Zephaniah's day. Think about it again. They were living in very uncertain times. The great spiritual awakening and revival hadn't happened yet. Things were looking bleak, and the nations of the world even then were surrounding Israel because they were in a weakened condition, and the Israelites didn't know what their future held, and yet God was holding out to them a message of hope that I have a wonderful future planned for you. It echoes what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 29, 11. you see. When you read the Old Testament prophets, even though a lot of their books are filled, as Zephaniah is, with messages and prophecies of judgment to come, they also contain great nuggets of hope and, and, and truth and comfort and encouragement to the people, especially those who have embraced God or who want God in their life. So let's look at these five what I call promises from our divine warrior tonight. Five. The first one, the first part of verse 17. The Lord, Yahweh, your God, is in your midst. Again, the second time now that phrase has been given. What's it mean the Lord God is in our midst? Well, again, it means to be among us, to sense his presence among us, to be with us, Jesus even said, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. But here's the amazing thing. It also means to be within us. And I can't help but think, especially for us in the New Testament, I think that speaks about the very presence of the Holy Spirit, God, the third person of the Trinity, who literally lives within each of us, and then we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God not only is amongst us and with us, he literally is inside of us, at our very center. In fact, these words, your midst, in the Hebrew speak about the innermost part of our being. Think about the, the ramifications of that for a moment. Consider that and, and maybe even take time throughout the rest of this week because I can't even cover the depth of what God is saying here tonight, but think about what that means. Let me just give you one way to look at this great sort of diamond that you can sort of turn and get different facets to it. Realize that one of the things that this teaches us is that God, the Holy creator and sustainer of the universe wants to be with us. Do you realize that in all the religions of the world, there's no other God like our God. There's no God that wants to hang out and spend time, much less eternity, with us poor sinners who are always so messed up and fragile and feeble and frail and all that and have all of our hang-ups and all that. And yet our God, our God wants to be at the very center of our lives. 
wants to be part of everything that happens, good or bad, but he's going to be right there in the very center, in the very midst. He's not like, you know, human beings who may be what we would call fair-weather friends who are only with us and beside us and, and all of that and supporting us when everything's going well or when they, you know, are, you know we're, we're doing well. No, God is there always, always. Never leave us, never forsake us, and even has set it up in his word to tell us that I want to spend eternity with you. Can I tell you? Honestly, I wouldn't want to spend eternity with me. I don't look at myself that special, right? But God does. And maybe you feel the same way. Like, well, what's so special about me? Well, here, here's what it is. And this is what, why we have to accept what the Bible says by faith and not by how we feel about ourselves or whatever. God says, you're so special. You are of such value and worth. I want to spend eternity with you. And I care enough about you that I sent my one and only son to this earth to die on the cross and, and sacrifice himself so that, so that my holiness could be appeased and there could be a way of righteousness to me through that one mediator, Jesus Christ. That's how much he wants to be with us. That's why it's so important that as a church we talk about experiencing and engaging with the presence of God because that's what it's all about. God wants to be at the very center of our church and in our midst. And every time somebody comes on this church campus, my prayer and my hope, and I know so many others feel this way too, that I want them to know God is here. And in, he's here in such a way that it's palpable. You can, you can feel it. You can sense it. You know he's here. You know he's moving. You know he's working. He is in the midst of his people. He's at the very center. Folks, this is God's desire throughout history. Even when God made the preparations for the tabernacle, God said, I want the tabernacle Moses set up right in the middle of the camp of the Israelites. And all 12 tribes surround the tabernacle so that the tabernacle representing the very presence of God with the holy of holies inside represented God's presence in the very center of the camp of his people. And God says, that's exactly what I want today. I want to just settle down and be right in your midst. And not just collectively, but even individually. God doesn't want to be pushed to the fringes of our life. He wants to be right in the very center of everything that we do. He wants to be included in everything because God cares about everything about our lives and us too. So when you think and read Zephaniah 3.17, don't ever forget that the Lord your God wants to be in your midst. Second, he is a warrior who can deliver battle, military language. Why? Well, first of all, because God has fought for us, hasn't he? I mean, the devil did everything he could to keep Jesus from going to that cross as the Lamb of God, to mess up the plan of God. In fact, even if you go back to the book of Genesis, the devil throughout history tried to do everything he can to circumvent the Messiah coming. There's always been a spiritual battle for the souls of human beings like us. 
And yet Zephaniah is declaring what the Lord declared to him, I am a warrior. I love the Hebrew. It's El Gabor. I just love to say that. And, and one of the meanings of El Gabor is hero. That's who should be our hero, Jesus. Jesus should be our hero. Do you know, in the last 15 years, four out of every five summer movies were superhero movies. They were the top grossing movies in the last 15 years. Four out of every five of the summer blockbusters were superhero movies. Why? Because we want heroes. We want heroes. And God is saying, I'll be your hero. I'll be your El Gabor. I am mighty to save. I am the proven, powerful, prevailing warrior who can take down any enemy that is against you. No weapon formed against us can prosper. If God is for us, then who can be against us, Paul said to the Romans. And the word deliver means to help. It means to save. It means to rescue. And God can do it all. Because there's nothing greater than God. There's nothing more powerful than God. There's nothing that will ever come into our lives that God can't handle. God wants us to see that he is the hero of our lives. He is the mighty warrior who will go to bat for us and go to battle for us and fight for us and fight with us and be by our side. It's the very reason why that little shepherd boy David could walk out there and face the giant Goliath because he knew he was going in the name of the Lord and that the Lord was with him and that the Lord would energize those stones which ended up taking down the giant. Zephaniah wants us to know that God is in our midst. He also wants us to know that he is a warrior who can deliver. The third promise, he takes great delight in you. And folks, it's so easy for us to say, I know God delights in others and all that, but, but no, each one of us has to be open to the fact that this is for us tonight too. He takes great delight in each of us. We are the objects of his overwhelming affection. We are literally the joy and source of rejoicing of God. I know that's hard for us sometimes to accept, but that's exactly what the Bible, the Word of God is saying. God takes great delight in you. You and I are his delight, his joy. We make God smile, if you will. What a message. You know, we live in a world where people are just searching and looking for someone to love them, someone to care about them, someone to pay attention to them and all of that. And God is saying, I take great delight in you. When people push away and reject the love of God, they reject the greatest love they will ever know. 
And when you and I do not live in that love and receive his love every day, we are the ones missing out because there's no greater love that we could live for and live by and, and be fueled from than the love of God for us. When you go to bed tonight and when you wake up tomorrow morning, remember, God takes great delight in you. God! And then I love this. Speaking about his love, he renews you by his love. This is a very full verse in the Hebrew. First of all, the word renews means all together. In other words, he is all in with us, but it also comes from the root to engrave. In other words, it is the idea that God literally has us engraved, if you will, upon his heart. He even told the people of the Old Testament, I have engraved you even on the palms of my hands so I cannot forget you any more than a mother could forget her child through the prophet Isaiah. How could I forget you, says God? I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. And here again is that idea, that concept of engraving. And it has a, a double meaning as well. It, it's not a... Either or, it's a both and. When it says he renews us by his love, it, it means, first of all, we are quieted or settled by the love of God for us. That's what the word means. I mean, think about that. When you know and you receive God's love in your life, doesn't it quiet and settle our hearts? At least that's, one of the purposes of why God wants us to receive and embrace his love for us so that we won't be so filled with angst and all of that and we will rest in God and in his love for us. Because as Paul said, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Romans chapter 8. But here's the amazing thing. And as I was thinking about this, it, it was just hard for me to comprehend. This phrase also means that God is silent or speechless in his love for us. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, obviously there's times where God does declare and express his love for us, and he's done that clearly both in word and in action. But there's also times, and this just blows me away, where we are such objects of God's overwhelming affection that he can't even express it? I mean, think about that. And you and I know what we're talking about because there are a few times in our life where, for instance, I'll never forget the first time my firstborn was born, Stephen. And I held my baby boy in my arms, and I just looked down. I couldn't say anything. My, my heart was just, there were no words. And, and throughout our life, there are times where there are people in our life or people who come into our life or people that are so dear to us that sometimes it's just, it's hard to express the depth of our love for them. And, and sometimes it's just hard to, to, to say what is really in our hearts. That's God. That's God for us. In fact, 
Give me just a minute here to develop something else. In the Old Testament, most of the time, the majority of the time, the Bible talks about God's love for his people in the Old Testament. The word that is used in the Hebrew is the word hesed, which is a covenant loyalty of love for God. But here in Zephaniah 3.17, it's a very unusual word. It's the Hebrew word ahava, A-H-A-V-A. And it's very rare. You know one of the only other times it's used in the Old Testament? Keep your finger in Zephaniah because we're going to come back and finish in just a moment. But go back to the book of Genesis 29. Genesis 29 is the story of Jacob and Rachel. And if you know the story, I'm not going to go all into it tonight, but, you know, Laban fooled Jacob and he married Leah even though he wanted to marry Rachel because Rachel was the love of his life. And he had to work seven more years to marry the love of his life, Rachel. And notice what it says in Genesis 29, 20. These seven years seemed like only a few days to him because his love, ahava, for her was so great. In other words, ahava love is in a sense, no sacrifice is too great for that person that I love that much. When you love at that depth, there is no sacrifice. Nothing that, that could be asked, nothing that could be done that you would say, oh, I, that, no, I, I, I don't love you that much to do that. And it goes even way beyond even sort of sometimes the agape love that you and I have to demonstrate and, and, and live by too, that's that supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit that allows us to love others even though we don't necessarily feel like doing it. We do it because it's the right thing to do and there's nothing wrong with that. That's good. But this Ahava love it even goes to sort of, it's like, no, no, I want to make that sacrifice because there's nothing too great for that one that's loved at that level. Well, when you think about it, is that not, there was no sacrifice too great for God to come to this earth to assume a human body, to be rejected of men, to be treated the way he did, even as a perfect, sinless God, and to go to that cross and die for us. No sacrifice was too great for us. That's how much he loves us. Ahava love. And that's the kind of love that Zephaniah says God has for us. He'll go to any length for us. That's how much he loves us. He will go to the end for us. And then if you go back to Zephaniah 3.17, we close with this. He shouts, by the way, can I say, that means he sings loudly, He shouts for joy over you. God doesn't hold back in celebrating us with singing. Did you ever think about God singing? What do you think the voice of God sounds like when he sings? If the Bible says that God's voice literally spoke the universe into being out of nothing... If that's what his voice can do, what is it like to hear God sing? Oh, and by the way, he sings over you. 
he celebrates you with singing. Yes, we have a singing God. In fact, I shared this a couple weeks ago with you. In the New Testament, the Bible tells us that the night that Jesus was betrayed, after he participated with his disciples in the Last Supper, communion that we just did on Sunday, the Bible says before they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane where he was arrested and to the Mount of Olives, the Bible says they sang a song. Jesus led his disciples in singing a song before he went out to be arrested that night. God sings. And I believe that one of the joys of being in heaven and being with God is we're going to hear what the voice of God sounds like when he sings. I can't even imagine. I mean, the, the closest thing I can get, any of you ever been to Niagara Falls? I mean, when, when you stand in Niagara and you just hear the thunder of that water coming over those falls, and that's nothing compared to, I'm sure, the voice of God. And yet that's about, as, or maybe even like one of these you know, military jets when it takes off and does its afterburner thing and, you know, it's like, oh my goodness, the rumble, you know, I, I don't know. But I know this, Zephaniah 3.17 records this, whatever his voice sounds like, he doesn't hold back in singing over us. And when the realization of that gripped me, I realized, then how can I stand over here on Wednesdays or Sundays and hold back in my worship of God? How can I just not let it out and make the most joyful noise that I can? Because my God certainly hasn't held anything back in his love for me He's laid it all on the line. He's demonstrated everything. And every day, God is declaring and renewing me by his love and singing over me and celebrating me. And he does the same thing with you. And this was the message that the prophet Zephaniah was given to record so that the people of God, that remnant, that faithful remnant, could wait patiently through adhering to their Lord and know that the Lord has their best interest at heart and one day he's going to come and all of his promises are going to be fulfilled and he's got a wonderful future plan for all of us who will follow him and embrace a love that he has for us that is unlike any other love we will ever know. So my encouragement to all of us tonight in this room is open up your heart to the God who is in your midst, to the warrior who can deliver, who takes great delight in you, who renews you by his love, and who shouts for joy over you. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight for being such an amazing God. Lord, even for those of us who know you and we've walked with you and we've been saved for many years. Lord, verses like this and, and truth like this, Lord, just sometimes is even hard for us to truly accept. But we do so by faith. We might not see anything special in ourselves. We might not see ourselves of, of great value or worth. But God, each and every day, 
you, the creator and sustainer and savior of this universe, speaks into our life, sings into our life, and says, you are my treasure. I cherish you. You are of greatest worth and value to me. May we hear that voice in our hearts and in our minds. May we accept what God says and sings over us each and every day. May we be motivated and inspired and encouraged and refreshed and rejuvenated and restored by your love, God, for us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks, February 5th, I'll be back to start our prophecy series. God bless you. Thank you for being here. We'll see you.